Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Gargoyle Podcast. I'm Nathan, a.k.a. the Gargoyle. And on tonight's episode is very special guest, Graham Skipper. Say hello, Graham. Hey, what's going on? Uh, you know, doing the podcast thing, talking for doing what I do. Hell yeah. <laughs> Having fun with all of the things that are not, yes, know, like, responsible that are, that are Exactly, that are not, not uh, all the fun stuff. Right, right. <laughs> Uh, so you are on tonight's episode because one, you're just a lot of fun to talk to, uh, and oh, for well, two, uh, I mean it, uh, and for two, Sequence Break just premiered on Shutter last night, correct? Yes. How how's that going for you? Uh, it's amazing. It's super surreal. Um, it's uh, yeah. I mean, you know, we we filmed it like almost two and a half years ago, so you know, to finally have the end of this journey. You know, be be uh, one that it comes out on Shutter, which is like one of my favorite platforms and at all, you know, in the world. And two, that like so many people have been giving such you know kind thoughts about it, and it's clearly been res- you know people have been responding well to it. It's just been really uh, surreal and exciting and fun, and I'm just glad that people get to see it now. Yeah, me too. I uh, I had a chance to see it last year at the Chat Film Fest. Uh, which was the world premiere, correct? Yes. Yeah. Which, um, yeah, it really sucked because uh, I saw it there, but you know how Chat Film Fest is, where you're running from movie to movie. So I had to miss the end of it. So I left before all of the crazy stuff happened. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. So I had like this, uh, the suspense just building up until the Knox Horror Fest a few months later. And then I finally... Uh, was able to have some resolution like it oh that's fun okay <laughs> it was a very tantric movie watching experience for me sure yeah you really dragged that that climax out didn't you oh and with the tone of the movie it worked um yes. <laughs> all right so i have a lot of questions some of them um, might be thought-provoking ish some of them might just be kind of silly um but for anyone who might be listening, we're probably going to get into some spoilers. Um, we're definitely going to get into some spoilers. So if you have not yet watched Sequence Break, go to Shudder right now and watch it. Uh, if you don't have a Shudder subscription, get one and then watch it. Actually, I think they do a free month, don't they? Don't they do like... I think, I think they do. The yeah, they, yeah, they do a free month. And uh, and really, I mean, if you're a horror fan at all, uh, Shudder is the absolute must-have. You know, it's only like five bucks a month. And they have the absolute best selection of horror movies uh, that you can find um, on demand right now. And so it's really, I mean, I was a customer of theirs for like three years before they bought my movies. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, uh, I'm speaking from the heart. I really love it. And uh, that's, that's part of like so exciting that we're on there. But yes, go watch it. It's only like 80 minutes long. So you can do it real quick. Yeah. It's almost as long as this podcast might be. All right. So. Yes. This uh, this was your directorial debut uh, in terms of a feature film, yes. and I I know that some of the questions I'm going to ask are probably things that you're sick of hearing ish, but whatever. Uh, so why that switch? Like, what made you want to go from acting into the director's chair? You know, um, I I had thought about it before, but I didn't really have a lot of interest in directing specifically I, I knew i wanted to write you know i've always been a big writer and 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 you know so writing and acting are really kind of my two passions and um i was always really fine with you know the prospect of writing a movie and then letting somebody else direct it um but then when i started developing this script <clears throat> it was just something 
it was very personal to me. You know, the story was something that was really intimate. Um, and I just had in my head a very specific visual style that I felt like the movie needed to be done in. Um, and then when the opportunity came about to, you know, do we want to actually do this thing? Um, I just, I went to myself, you know, this is, this is the movie to do on your own. This is the one where you need to tell this story, uh, you know, in the way that you want to tell it. Um, and that's really how it came about. You know, it was about sort of, uh, the necessity of storytelling, you know, um, mm. this is a, a personal thing for me and, uh, and a really, you know, important story for me to tell my way. Um, and, and that's really, uh, you know, how it came about. And I loved it. I mean, there's something so thrilling about really being able to create your own world, you know, as an actor, you're yeah. so focused on, on sort of the narrow specificity of what is my character doing within this world? You know, what are they, why are they, acting this way what do they want um you know but but you are within somebody else's sandbox um and that's part of the fun of it you know is, is adapting to that but then behind the camera you know you're really responsible for making sure that the world itself is cohesive and that the world works um and that was a whole different kind of challenge but was really fun for me well, and I can also imagine that um, it's a lot more exciting, but also a lot more terrifying, because if you do a really bad job at acting, you can always blame it on the director. Like, oh, it wasn't <laughs> my fault. They told me to stand here when here obviously wasn't even on camera. But <laughs> sure. when the movie itself is terrible, like you can't really say um, it was the actor's fault. So like, what were some of those fears that you had um, in, in making that switch? Um, you know, it, there was certainly a lot of pressure, you know, but for me, it was just kind of a matter of accepting the responsibility of what we were about to do. Um, and then, and then surrounding myself with, you know, professionals that, that I had worked with before and that I knew, knew their shit and, you know, just sort of building an army to support me, uh, and help me make this vision come true. Um, you know, and, and really, I mean, any movie, the, the success of any film, I think, is, is you know, the directly, you know, you, you can directly credit the crew um, and, and the people, you know, the crew and the cast and the whole team yeah. um, and not just one guy. Um, and so it was really important to me to sort of stack the deck in my favor, as it were. And um, and I was super lucky with the crew that I did have. I mean, the, it, it, we, uh, you know, we, we were all going towards the same goal and, um and, you know, really, uh, uh, we're all sort of marching together um, in a really uh, positive way. Yeah. Uh, well, I want to go back like a half second to where you were talking about you had a specific visual style in mind. And you're like, all right, or not necessarily just a visual style, but a specific style in mind. Um, there's been tons of comparisons with Cronenberg, and obviously that was a huge influence. But what were some of the other influences? Like, what was that style that um that, that you were driven to create yeah um good question i so a few of the different references that like my uh, darker photography and i talked about were you know in addition to cronenberg which is kind of its own sort of thing um i really love um you know like let's see some movies were like punch drunk love um i really love the visual style of that i love you know all the lens flares and sort of the deep, deep blues uh, that keep going throughout that movie. And, and I remember that being a film where I really noticed that the, the love story at the heart of it 
um, is really amplified by the visual choices that Anderson makes. Um, so we talked about that. We talked about uh, one of my favorite movies, Upstream Color by Shane Carruth. Um, uh, and, and, you know, that film to me is another example of a, a movie that is, is totally wacky in terms of what its plot is. Like it's a really, you know, b- sort of surreal, bizarre movie um, that is rooted in what ultimately is a very real kind of solid world. Um, and yet the visual style reflects the, you know, the, the surreality that the film is in. Um, and it's just a really interesting balance, I think, to watch that movie um, and and be drawn into the romance of it, um, but, but but then also sort of be subject to the uh, the surreality of what is uh, you know of what's being put on screen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we talked a lot about Lynch. Um, you know, David Lynch uh, has lots of weird shit happen in his movies, <laughs> um, and just a little, and and you don't necessarily know the logic behind it like it's it's not necessarily possible for someone to like watch a movie like Mulholland Drive and be able to exactly extrapolate you know oh this happens because of this and etc cetera, etc cetera. um but at the same time you never once doubt that Lynch understands it um and i think for me that's the magic of what Lynch does you know like i watch a racer head and even though i don't necessarily know what's going on i know that Lynch does Right. And so I'm I'm willing to go along for the ride. And that's that was really one of the main things that we wanted to get across in this movie was that, you know, even if some of the stuff, you know, especially in, in like the trippier final third, if some of that stuff doesn't necessarily, you know, make sense to somebody as they're watching it, I, I at least want people to go, well, this is a world that definitely feels fleshed out, even if I don't quite even if I don't quite grasp it in a logical sense right now. Right. Um a lot like dreams, you know, like like in dreams, like weird, crazy, out of left field shit happens all the time, but you go with it because it just seems to make sense in the moment. Um, and and I wanted to really, uh, you know, play with that aesthetic with sequence break where people by the end, you know, felt like they had been on sort of a like a surfboard surfing along a dream, uh, and and you know by the end. You know, even if they went, what the fuck just happened? That that they still felt as if they had gone on on a journey. Yeah, yeah, and um, I, I've got a few questions about you know, like the uh, the romance and the story uh, and some of that. So we're definitely going to be getting into it. But I did really enjoy the fact that um, I really enjoy the fact that some of the weirder stuff that happened, it trying to think of how exactly to say it like it didn't quite feel like it was central to the story you know like that was just other stuff that was happening that wasn't the focus of the story but it Hmm. didn't feel like it was just thrown in to be like hey let's be weird to to show some weird stuff like like does that make sense where it felt like it was a part of it and it made sense but also it wasn't the focus that was driving it it I realize that might be kind of phrased awkwardly, but no, no, no. I, I think I know what you mean. I mean, you know, for me, the the crux of this story is it's a love story, right? right. <clears throat> like this movie is a love story between Oz and Tess, um, and it's about you know Oz's uh, you know redemption in terms of his being able to to make a different choice and and to take a different path. Um, 
and and so you know all of the you know the psychedelic like sci-fi elements that happen you know i think they all they all sort of exist in service of that you know this yeah. is um so yeah so i think i think i know what you mean and and you know it for for me you know any genre movie is strongest when at its heart is a story about people and relationships um and that if you if you care about the people then you can throw all sorts of bizarre shit at them and you know watch them interact with that and that's where the horror comes from right you know the reason why you get scared in the exorcist is because you care about Reagan and her mom yeah and you you want the two of them to be okay and Reagan is so sweet and innocent and so then when she turns that that's that's horrific um and and I wanted it to be the same with this where ultimately this is a story about a guy meeting a girl and being terrified of it yeah and terrified of change in his life and and the sci-fi elements of the sentient arcade machine you know live uh in service of of telling that story right yeah i was uh, i was talking with my friend lucas who sometimes co-hosts with me um and he was telling me about someone that he'd read or listened to i can't remember the original source but basically um any good horror movie starts with drama at its heart because if you don't care about the characters like you were just saying then you don't care what happens to them um yeah. and it, that was even one of the things that i have in my notes is i genuinely care about some of these characters I have some additional questions about them, but I, I cared what was happening. So yeah, the weird stuff that was happening, it wasn't just, all right, well, this has to make complete sense or it has to be perfectly logical. You have to care about what is going to happen and what isn't going to happen. Yeah, um, good. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> so along with the, like at, at any good horror, you have uh, drama at its heart. So I just watched A Quiet Place the other night. And uh -huh, yeah. this is not going to be a podcast about A Quiet Place. But, you know, like I had read some reviews and heard some people talk about like, oh, it's not really all that scary. Uh, it's this and this and this. But, you know, like you and I talked about at the film fest, I'm about to be a dad. So that mm, movie mm -hmm. terrified me. Sure. Yeah. Oh, my God. So terrifying. But anyways, <laughs> well, just no, a side note. No, but it's true. I mean, and, and look, you know, people it's like, yeah, I've read those, you know, statements like a quiet place wasn't scary or the witch wasn't scary or whatever wasn't scary. You know, like uh, to me, the beauty of the horror genre is that it's so broad yeah. and such a, an umbrella that you can have like so much different kinds of horror, uh, you know, just depending on what sort of lens you want to look at it through and different people are scared by different things, you know, and, and that definition is, is sort of nebulous. So, it makes me mad when, like, I read, you know, someone's like, well, A Quiet Place isn't really a horror movie because it, it didn't scare me. And like, well, it scared somebody, and it's certainly horrific what's going on. Yeah. And, you know, even if you didn't, like, jump or, I don't know, whatever, I felt a shit ton of dread during that movie, and I jumped a lot, and I was definitely on the edge of my seat, so I definitely consider it a horror film. Well, yeah, because it's not supposed to be how much does it scare you in that moment. It's supposed to right. be how much does this movie stick with you and yeah. how much are you thinking about it afterwards? How terrifying is it? Because, yeah, the stuff that made A Quiet Place a horror movie, and this will be the last thing we say on that so we can get back to sequence break. <laughs> yeah. The stuff yeah. that made A Quiet Place so horrific 
wasn't the immediacy of the monsters. Who cares about the monsters? It was that guilt and that doubt and just the, that question of whether or not he had done everything that he could have and should have. Uh, yeah. And bring it back to Sequence Break, I feel like there are some of those questions here as well in terms of uh, the impact that the game has, but we'll get to that later because I have some of the <laughs> heavier questions a bit further down on the list. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so why video games? You know, I, I read in one of the interviews that uh, you talked about uh, Polybius, Pol- Polybius, however uh, that's pronounced. Po- I think it's Polybius. I'm not sure, though. Yeah, I, I, that's how I've been saying it. Might be Polybus. I don't know. Maybe. Um, <laughs> so, so, yeah, like, why video games? I know that that was some of the inspiration. Um. Yeah, I mean, so on the one hand, I had years and years ago, like 15 years ago, read about the Polybius myth, um, you know, which, which for you know, listeners that, that don't know that, that is, you know, the short version is that there was an arcade machine that appeared in some arcades in the eighties, supposedly, uh, and it would cause like hallucinations and seizures and even death in people that would play. Um, and so it's this sort of myth about what was this? Some people say that there were like men in black from the government that would come and it was all mind reading, you know, mind control experiment sort of thing. Um, anyway, so I read about that a long time ago and I always thought that would make an interesting movie, but I could never quite like crack the code for how to make it a good movie and how to make it, you know, anything more than just like a slasher movie, but with an arcade machine, you know, like I didn't want to make deathbed the bed that eats, you know, like, but with an arcade machine. So, so anyway, that was just sort of floating around in the back of my head somewhere. Um, and, And then I, I, you know, sort of started working on this script that was, you know, a, a story about a guy that was sort of caught between two passions and that plus arcade game plus body horror just all kind of slammed together and it went, oh, this is what this script needs to be. Um, you know, but but more than that, you know, our, growing up for me, video games were a really big part of my life. Uh, they continue to be a big part of my life. I love video games, um, you know, and and I, I feel like my generation was the last generation to actually like really experience arcade culture, you know, like I remember going to the mall with my parents and my parents would go off and do their shopping and I would just stay in the arcade the whole time. You know, I remember going to movies with my parents and when they would want to go see an R rated film, I would have a choice. I could either go see a PG 13 movie or a PG movie by myself, or I could stay in the lobby and play arcade games. (laughs) And so I would stay in the lobby and I would play arcade games. Um, and, and so it just, you know, that sort of came to represent to me, um, you know, truly that part of my childhood. Um, you know, and I own several arcade games. I, I, there's just something about them that, that feels so, uh, I mean, nostalgic certainly, but also comforting. Um, you know, and it's, it's uh, like anytime I walk into a place and I see an arcade machine, you know, I don't know if it's because it's, it's purely a machine of fun. You know, it's like purely a thing that exists solely for a kid to have fun at. Um, I don't know what it is, but it just it makes me feel good. And so this idea about a guy who who loves them so much that he literally enters into a a lustful relationship with a machine um, was really interesting to me Um, and, and sort of an interesting way to 
to try to tackle, you know, some thoughts on, you know, nostalgia and the power of nostalgia and the dangers of nostalgia um, and just kind of ask those questions. Mm -hmm. So uh, along with that, along with some of that obsession and just getting sucked in, um, and this is, we've already been branching into spoiler territory, but even big spoilers, (laughs) kind of major in the movie spoilers. Uh, So if you were to get sucked into something and have a crazy version of future, you come back to try to get things right, or at least to try to, I don't know, send you down a crazier path. We can talk about what he was actually trying to do. Uh, what would that be? Like, what would your obsession be that eventually sucked you in? Hmm. Interesting question. Um, gosh. I mean, I, I, I suppose it would be something along the lines of, of, you know, of movies. I mean, that was definitely the thing for me growing up. That was the primary uh, like a, obsession, you know, it was, it was movies, it was video games, um, you know, and, and it was, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it was movies and video games. Um, so, so it might be that sort of thing that would suck me in, you know, and, and, you know, the question of like, what would I, what would future me say to myself? Um, gosh, I mean, that's, that's a hard question. You know, I, I, I don't really know. I mean, it would, a lot of it would be, you know, trust yourself, don't doubt yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think that that's a, uh, you know, that's a question that a lot of people have as they grow up is they don't, you know, they don't necessarily trust themselves to make the right choice. Um, and, and it's provided a lot of, uh, a lot of conflict and torment for me personally. Uh, so I might, I guess I might say something like that, but yeah, it's an interesting thought. I, I'm not exactly sure. Well, I have more questions similar-ish to that, where you're going to be like, damn it, Nathan, quit asking me these things. Yeah. <laughs> let's dig in real deep. Uh, let's really get in there and pull out your juicy joystick. No, that doesn't work. Oh, wow. That, well, no, that's... I am, I am home alone right now. <laughs> that is super awkward and weird. Uh, all right. So you've already mentioned a few times that it's a love story between Oz and Tess and the video game... Um, you know, it, it's Oz's obsession. It sucks him in. There is a very sexual relationship with it. But that's not the relationship that Tess has with the game. Like, her reaction to it is incredibly different. Yeah. Why? Um, so for me, <clears throat> you know, if you look at the game as, as a sentient entity, um, you know, it, it lusts after Oz. And Oz has a very sexual relationship with the game um i think that the game is jealous of tess um and and so with tess the game is more predatory um like you'll notice when you listen to the sound design of of what sounds the game is making when tess finally plays it um you know it's it's like alligator sounds and snakes hissing and um these these sort of predatory growls um it's not you know a sensual experience for her um you know so so i think it's more about like a you know like a spider slowly trapping her in its web um you know whereas for for you know oz it's about i want oz and only oz and and you know he can only you know and i'm going to be his one and only um and so the game at a certain point to me uh, has to find a way to get Tess out of the picture. Hmm. 
fascinating. I like it's, I, it's sort of it's sort of like think about like Christine, right? Right. Like in like in Christine, you know, the the car, you know, keeps offing all these people that wrong, you know, you know that wrong. I can't remember his, you know, the main character's name, I, but I can't remember. You either. know that that it's about sort of anthropomorphizing this object that reciprocates the lust that its owner shows shows it. Um, and and I think that's what the game is doing with with Oz and Tess. Huh. Yeah, I I definitely picked up on well, obviously the jealousy, but with some of the lines like a uh, future version of Oz saying, "Don't look into the void, let the void look into you," or whatever it was. Um, yeah. At at one point when he's playing it, and the uh, that little white light, you can kind of see it on his forehead. It's subtle. It could be easy to miss, but it is distinct. Like when I was watching it, I almost felt more like the game. It was kind of working like a mind's eye, where it was bringing to light, you know, fears and hopes and aspirations and doubts. And with Oz, I don't know, maybe because he was already so aware of some of his insecurities, it took more of his hopes and desires. But with Tess, since even though she was you know, still shy-ish, she, she seemed a lot more self-assured. And so I thought maybe it was pulling out more of her insecurities and kind of getting at the darker side of her. Interesting. Uh, that's, I mean, a really interesting take, and I, I like that a lot. You know, I, I, I will say that wasn't what I intended, but, but one thing that I love about this movie and that I encourage about this movie is that, you know, people are going to have different opinions about it. You know, it's, it's, it's purposefully left, you know, open-ended and left up for interpretation. Um, and uh, and I, I think that, you know, that that that's all valid you know ultimately at this point i've given the movie out to the world and now it's up to the world to decide what it means um and uh, and so i like that a lot i mean that's yeah that, that's a great interpretation and and i think it totally fits in the film it, it's up to the world now to let the film suck in who it wants um, exactly exactly <laughs> who to cover with white sticky goo and who to cover with the <laughs> more oily thing um all right, so, so with some of their relationship, with some of that love triangle between Oz and Tess and, uh, and the game, I, I felt like part of the horror with this movie was that struggle for Oz. You know, like, which way was he going um, between who he is and who he wants to be? You know, Tess is pulling him in one direction, the game's pulling him in another, and... Uh, like, I don't feel like it was coincidence that they both showed up at the same time, aside from the fact that it's a movie, so obviously they did, because <laughs> that's <laughs> sure. how plot devices work. Um, but what would have happened if they hadn't shown up at the same time? Like, what if Tess had shown up but never had the game? And I know that you kind of get to that with some of the uh, very end of the movie. Um, but also, what would have happened if the game had shown up but never Tess? Um, good, good question. I mean, I think that, you know, if the game had shown up without Tess, then I could imagine Oz, you know, getting sucked into a world where he is forever trapped, you know, in that, in that red room. Um, you know, and, and likewise, I think if Tess had shown up without the game, um, then, then I could see Oz, you know, potentially going into a life with her, um, but completely giving up on his ambition to make games or have games be a part of his life. Um, you know, because he wants to be, you know, he, he wants to fully, uh, fully engage, um, this new, you know, this, this new life for himself. I, I think mm -hmm. that Oz is somebody that, that goes, you know, headlong into, into every sort of new experience. 
Um, he's not somebody that that you know rides in the middle ever. Um, and and so I, I can see like there's so much of of the end of this movie that for me you know hinges on Oz finding a solution that's in the middle of the two extremes. Right. Um, you know, hitting literally hitting reset. Like, how do you you could have both? You can. You know, Tess says you can have both of these realities, um, which I think is what you know. For me, a lot of the message of the movie is that uh, you know it it would be death for him to either you know just stay with games the rest of his life and nothing else, or you know abandon everything else and, and go with Tess. Like neither of those you know situations is good for him, um, and so I, I can see. You know, if if either one of the two loves were to show up without the other, you know, that that he could potentially, you know, like a drug addict, like really fall down the rabbit hole with 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 that one that exists uh, because it's sort of the only thing on the table. And and the two of them showing up at the same time show Oz, hey, you've got to make a choice and, you know, or you've got to, uh, you know, align yourself in such a way uh, where where you can you can ride in the middle and, and, you know, compromise a little on each side, but ultimately have both of these things that you love. Yeah. Cause he, even though he obviously didn't remember what happened to him before getting sucked in and then spit back out and all this other stuff, yeah. I don't feel like he would have gone down that same path had the game not shown up. Like, I feel like if, uh, if the game had never been there and it was just Tess, like they either never would have met, he would have just still been, you know, just weird and quiet. Um, or like you said, just dive so headlong into it that he just completely gives up on his dreams. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's possible too, that once the, I mean, once the shop closes, you know, I can see a world where, you know, Oz like kills himself. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think he's so reliant on this life and on the, you know, on, on, on this life that he has continuing forever, um, that he, you know, he's, he's way too dependent on it. So, so I think that, you know, that's why it's at this point that he chooses to go back and, and offer himself this opportunity because I think this is really a turning point for him. So this is probably the biggest spoiler that possibly could be. Um, but also totally understand if you're like, ah, I'm going to leave that up to interpretation, but (laughs) what actually happens at the end? You know, like, is he dead? Is the crazy version of him in hell? Is the the version of him that goes and creates a game and also gets tests? Is that heaven by way of purgatory because he still has to rescue her and still has to go through some of that other weird stuff? Did he create an alternate timeline, an alternate dimension? What is really happening there? Um, yeah, all good questions. Uh, I will preface this by saying that I fully endorse anybody's interpretation of what they think this means at the end. Sure. Um, there is no one right answer. And, and I, I think that, you know, I, I based a lot of what, you know, I'll tell you what I intended and I based a lot of that in quantum theory. And according to quantum theory, everything happens, you know, like there's an, you know, if you're faced with two choices, then whatever choice you make is one of literally an infinite number of choices that you do actually make in different universes. So, so all that said, um, my intention uh, and and what is sort of written in the script is that you know Oz goes into this 
you know, he goes into the game. He figures out a way to to fully meld with the game. He he looks into the void, and the void looks back, and he's able to cross over into the game. When he does that, um, we in that split screen moment, we are seeing two of an infinite number of possibilities play out. Um, in one of these possibilities, in the red possibility, um, he he chooses to go into a world where he is, uh, you know, given, you know, infinite life and can play games as long as he wants. Um, but after, you know, an, an eternity in there, he realizes that he wants to get out, but he's trapped. Um, and the only way for him to, uh, get out of that situation is to, to, he realizes, uh, you know, he realizes that the only way to get out of that is to uh, build a game um, that will allow himself in the past to to sequence break all of this existence and prevent it from ever happening. Um, and so he he, you know, in that reality, he he builds the circuit board and he makes the game, and then he flashes, you know, out of existence in that place back in time. Um, to, you know, to, to effectively sequence break life. Um, in the blue uh, reality, he goes into a world where he doesn't care about games at all, and he's going after Tess to go rescue her. Um, and he goes in there, and, and he, you know, saves her. And in a similar way to what he did in the red, where he figured out a way to sort of break free of the bounds of that prison... Um, because you remember that the, the man, the vagrant, you know, tells him, you know, this is the door to the infinite. And then in the infinite, uh, you know, there are no rules. There are no walls. You can do anything that you want. Um, so to me, Oz is taking advantage of that. And in, in the blue reality, he, you know, he rescues Tess and then he is able to literally crawl out of the game, uh, which he's not supposed to do. Um, and that's where Tess, who is now fully a part of this world and can't leave, says, you know, you can have both look between the ones and zeros, hit reset. And and it's not until Oz realizes that he has to destroy his own creation um, in order to fully, you know, reset the timeline and go back to before any of this happened and make a different choice. And and so to me, that was the intention of, of what actually happens there at the end. Yeah, and I love the fact that just because I'm all like sci-fi and nerdy and weird, I love the fact that what got him into the situation in the first place is something that he created after he was already sucked into what it was that was created. Like yeah. just a, a very weird time loopy kind of thing, and uh, lots and lots of fun. Well, thanks, and 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 also, you know, for me thematically, you know, it, it's sort of a statement on how we create our own problems. You know, and and but we also can create our own solutions, um, and and that's uh, I think an important aspect of of what Oz is going through here. So, uh, just minor side notes, and if you just want to kind of chuckle it off and not actually give an answer, uh, with the red and the blue, was there any sort of subconscious um, political commentary with that? <laughs> with, <laughs> with, with the red um, being trapped in seeking after your own desires and the blue being a bit more um, altruistic? 
Um, that's really interesting. No, that wasn't intended. Uh, but but I like that. <laughs> I really like that take on it. Um, yeah, no. It, I mean, for me, red and blue uh, came from red, blue, and green. You know, those are the three right. main colors of the movie, and that's what makes up uh, a video game. Uh, and then when for these two, you know, the green was sort of the color of the machine, and so I wanted his two choices to be the two kind of opposite primary colors of red and blue. And so that's that's really where it came from. But but I, I really like that take on it. That's a good that's a good take. <laughs> that's what I'm here for. Yeah. Uh, all right. So with some of those interactions between Oz and Tess, um, at times it felt very natural and it felt like conversations that either I've had or that like I've seen friends of mine have like parts of it felt very, very much. Oh, I totally know that person. Other parts of their conversations felt a little bit more ideal idealized um but but again that's just based off of my interactions and like that do people actually talk like that so which was it for you were, were their interactions based a little bit more on like real conversations that you've had or was it based a bit more on that idealism especially with kind of that crux of the movie being us choosing between these two desires and having to try to not go to one extreme or the other um, it was definitely a little bit of both. You know, I, I definitely drew from personal experience and tried to, you know, my primary goal was to make sure that their relationship felt as natural as possible. Um, so so that was, you know, number one priority. Uh, you know, as far as, as, you know, what, you know, what was designed to feel more like natural and off the cuff versus something that was maybe a little bit more stylized or idealized, um, you know, I, I couldn't really say. I, I really just tried to make, you know, both of their voices consistent throughout the movie. And, and you know, I wanted both of them to really have something to say. Like, I wanted Tess to have an opinion, and I wanted Oz to have an opinion. And, and you know, I think Tess has more opinions than Oz, because Oz is sort of afloat in the world. Um, and Tess, I think, is very driven. Um you know, but but that was really what guided it. You know, I, I just wanted all the dialogue to sound natural, and I, I um, you know, wanted for their interaction to feel, you know, to feel honest and true. Um, and so that that was really what what drove the dialogue. Okay, um, so along with that, you know, anyone who who creates anything, obviously they put a part of themselves into their creation, whether it be. Um, it, artistically or uh more more autobiographical i guess so what parts of you did you put into this movie and kind of along with that is there a character that you feel like you identify the most with um yeah you know i i, I definitely i mean there was a brief period of time where i considered playing oz myself um and I very quickly decided against that because I, I wanted to focus all my energies towards directing. Um, and, and plus Chase, you know, was going to be such a perfect choice for this that, you know, it just totally made sense. Um, but there's a lot of Oz that I identify with. I mean, I when I wrote the script, you know, I was sort of going through a crisis of my own where I I couldn't see a way to, to have both my... To, like to live out both my passion for acting and my passion for like my wife and having a family. Right. Right. So, 
a lot of it came out of, you know, me kind of going, because as an actor, you have to, you have to make a lot of sacrifices and you have to be able to like cancel family trips and, you know, go fly away for six weeks at a time and be gone a lot. And, you know, it's, it's hard. Um, and, and I really also wanted to, you know, I was very passionate about that, but then I also wanted to be able to, you know, treat my wife the way that, that I wanted to treat her and be with her in these, you know, in, in the way that I wanted to be with her. Um, and, and so I found myself, you know, at a certain point hitting a crisis moment and going, gosh, do I have to choose one or the other? <laughs> like, is it possible to have both of these things? And I think that Oz's crisis sort of grew out of that where, you know, he's because like I look at making horror movies and acting and stuff. I mean, I look at all that as just it's having fun. Right. You know, like it, it is having fun. And and so I think for Oz, you know, this idea that even though he's got a career in fixing video games and, and working and living amongst video games, that even though he has that, um, he still looks at it as, well, this is him, you know, being a kid. You know, he's he's never grown out of this phase. Um, and I think Tess re represents to him a greater responsibility to you know, to, to go and have a life outside of this cocoon that he's built for himself. Right. Um, and I think that is what's scary for Oz. And, and that, you know, was what was scary for me about the prospect of like, gosh, you know, I love my wife and I want to be with her, but man, how, you know, how miserable would I be if I had to totally give up on filmmaking in order to do that? Um, and so, you know, this idea of, of, you know, you can have both, uh, look between the ones and zeros that really sprouted from this, you know, this concept of, you know, you just have to look at it. You have to take a different perspective on it, you know, and you can have both. And maybe you have to give a little on each side, but you can have both these things in your life. And in fact, it's crucial that you have both of these things in your life. Yeah. Um, you know, life is neither a zero nor a one. It has to be both of them um, to be fulfilled. And and so, yeah, so so there's definitely a lot, you know, a lot of me personally in the movie and and i definitely you know i i i see a lot from oz's eyes um because that was really you know by design um you know and, and a, a vital sort of uh conflict that i thought we needed to you know to to really uh, explore yeah well and part of how oz you know found that in between I feel like um, I feel like Tess was a huge part of that, especially that conversation that she had of you know this is your it moment, like that's it for you, yeah, uh, which was a really funny uh, little bit about this is it for you, excuse me, uh, <laughs> yeah. So with that in mind, because you know I like to dig, what is your it moment, and if it hasn't happened yet, like what do you envision it being? What do you want your it moment to be? Um, to, to be honest with you, I think that my it moment, um, and, and this is what was in my head when I was writing the script, um, it was when I decided to come out to L.A. to be in Reanimated the Musical. Um, I, I had been, uh, you know, in a, a, a pretty successful comedy troupe for many years in New York, um, and we were, you know, we were performing at some major venues, and we were you know, performing in, in front of a big crowds and had really gained a lot of momentum. 
Um, and something inside me was, I think, itching for something else. Um, and I couldn't put words to it. Um, and then I was presented with the opportunity to come out and play Herbert West and reanimated the musical, um, which was a really great opportunity. But what it, you know, previously in my whole career leading up to that, I had always turned down jobs in favor of doing stuff with the troupe. Um, that was absolutely 100% my goal and my dream, you know, was to, you know, make it with this troupe. I mean, it's, they're my family, you know, and, and then I was presented with this opportunity to play Herbert West and, and to come out here and work with Stuart Gordon. And it was a situation where, you know, I had never been out of New York for any, you know, significant length of time. And I especially hadn't been out of New York where I had missed, you know, performances with, with my troupe. Um, but I still decided that I was going to go. Um, and, and it was the most important decision of my life. Hmm. Um, you know, and ultimately it, it led to me moving out here, you know, the show kept getting extended and extended. Um, and eventually, you know, for a while I was flying back and forth to try to make shows with my troupe back in the city. And, and eventually that just became too hard to do. And, you know, my wife and I both at a certain point when we said like, when we learned that I was going to be here for at least six more months to do the show, we said, why don't we move out here? You know, let's get a place. And, and really that was the new trajectory for me. Like I, that's where I met Joe Bigas, you know, that's where I got introduced to the whole LA horror community. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that was how, you know, everything started for me in terms of my horror career, which I'm so grateful to have. Um, and so I, I, when I was writing that monologue, I thought, you know, if I had to go back in time and talk to myself, I would say, make this choice. This is going to be a really hard choice. And this is going to be, you know, a really scary choice to make, but you've got to make it. Yeah. Um, this is, this is crucial. Um, and and so I, I believe that I, I believe truly that that was my it moment. Well, I am super glad that you made that decision because I I love the stuff that you've done. Still haven't seen <laughs> all of you. it because you know time. Um, but yeah, like even just within the last couple of years, I mean, Beyond the Gates was probably one of my favorite movies over the last couple of years. Absolutely loved it. I've talked about it way too much on this podcast. Um, you know, I, I love uh, all the other things that you've been in. Loved Almost Human, even just like the uh, the shorts, like um, Feeding Time. You know, it, they've just all been so much fun. So I love the fact that uh, that you made that decision. Thank you, thank you. Well, you're welcome. Um, all right. So along with that, people who are a bit more familiar with your work, um, and let me preface preface this by saying. Reading some of the reviews out there, um, it was very weird how uh, at least one review mentioned pacing in terms of like the first half was great, but then the second half felt off. And then another review said the first half felt off, but the second half was great. So first off, I just find it ironic <laughs> that there's the uh, the opposing sides of just uh, the first half is this, but the second half. Anywho, um, it, people who have seen some of your other work like i could understand how people would be expecting it to be a lot more actiony and just a lot more you know balls to the wall right out of the gate and just not letting up to the very end 
Um, but I don't feel like that's what this movie was supposed to be. You know, I, I know that the first time that I saw it, like I said, I left before it got super crazy at the end. Um, but the entire time I was like, all right, where's the crazy? Like, there's a little bit here, a little bit there, but like, you know, I was expecting that over the top action. The second time I saw it where I was expecting, well, I was expecting it to be what it was. It's like, all right, I'm able to enjoy this. I'm able to just kind of get a lot more into the characters and then be a lot more invested by the time I get to the end. And then uh, this most recent viewing, you know, I was really able to hone in on just a lot of little things, like even some of the uh, the subtle lines that they have letting you know, this is what's happening to these characters. If you rewatch it, you give tons of setup to let people know this is what's happening. And I love that. I love the fact that it's not just uh, in your face like, ha, this is what the movie is happening. But then going back and rewatching it, it's like, oh, those lines were intentional and they make sense. Um, but the reason that I, I say all of that is, um, you know, I, I feel like the pacing of this movie was supposed to be a lot more care about these characters, be invested in who they are. Weird stuff's going to happen. That's not the point. Um, was that, was that intentional or was that just kind of a side effect of focusing on the character? it's kind of a chicken and egg question, I guess. Sure. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, you know, I guess it's a little bit of both. Um, you know, on the one hand, I wanted to make sure that primary goal care about the characters, you know, love story first, really, really focus on that. Um, and that I wanted to, you know, have a, a clear buildup, you know, with every time that, you know, we have one of those, hallucinogenic moments that it's a you know that it's a progression you know that that it it grows every time um but in terms of the ending you know i it took a lot of inspiration from 2001 um it's it's one of my favorite movies and i think it's it's a total masterpiece and you know for for me the jupiter and the beyond segment um is 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 so powerful because of how long you've spent sort of building up to this right you know you you have this long section that builds up to the monolith first appears then you have another long section that builds up to oh we found a second monolith and and it it you know guides us even further out and then another long section with you know such a an incredible um you know crisis with Hal, um, and then we we find the monolith again, and and then instead of it being a thing where like they land on Jupiter and go walk around and find some aliens, like no, it then takes us into a place that is so far beyond the realm of logic that that we have no choice but to submit to the movie, right? Um, and so I wanted to do my best to provide you know, an ending that, you know, we're, we're, I feel like since we've established, Hey, there's this game and it's, you know, uh, it's, it's, you know, having this for, you know, exerting this, this force on Oz. Um, and you know, it's, it's doing this, this, uh, all this stuff to him. Um, you know, that, that we need to have been a payoff at the end of truly seeing what this game is capable of. Yeah. And what happens when you do 
when you do really dive in and you actually make this connection. Um, and so I wanted to, to give that, you know, I wanted to, and I wanted to really like just totally go for broke and, and, you know, have this crazy freak out, you know, at the end of the film. Um, so, so, you know, it, there was no conscious decision of like, I want the first half to be slow and the second half to be fast, or I want, you know, this, this movie to be balanced in such a way, you know, it was really a matter of like, just making sure that the relationship between Oz and Tess was clear and that it was important and that it was grounded. Um, and that there was a steady buildup of Oz's relationship with the game, um, that culminated in, uh, in, in Oz finally, uh, you know, stepping over the threshold and, uh, being able to meet his destiny face to face. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, even, even with the pacing, it feels very much like a relationship, <laughs> you know, like first you have just some of the introduction, it's awkward, like maybe this is going to happen, maybe it won't. And then as things continue to grow, it feels a lot more cohesive. And then there's always that defining moment in relationships. Like there is always that one thing that happens that either causes people to say, that's it, I'm out, nope. Or, you know what, this sucks, but you mean enough to me that we're going to work through this and we're going to commit to it. Um, so yeah, with, and, and again, maybe that's just because relationships were such a, uh, a driving point of the movie, but the movie it's, itself felt like, well, felt like a relationship. Thanks. Yeah, I mean that was the goal. You know, it's really it's it, it was really all about making sure that that you know Oz had his own relationship with Tess, and that he had his own relationship with the machine, um, and and that the the arc of both followed you know followed that in a in a realistic way. Yeah. All right. Um, I don't want to take up too much more of your time because I oh, I'm, could I'm talk. having a blast. Keep, keep talking. <laughs> well, I was going to say I could talk for literally hours. Um, all right. Cool. I was going to dive into some lightning questions, but sure. I'll just ask these questions and make them not lightning. More of like a light <laughs> drizzle where they can last as long as they want. <laughs> okay. All right. Good. Uh, all right. So... Um, so I really, really enjoyed the synth music. I really enjoyed uh, the color palette, uh, the fact that it was, you know, these sort of retro video games. The movie itself felt very retro, which, you know, was intentional and, um, and it's been commented on plenty. Um, but along with Sequence Break having more of that retro feel, uh, it's, it's very popular right now. You have Stranger Things, Beyond the Gates, uh, Goldberg's, Summer of 84. Like, there's just such a... I don't want to say a glut of nostalgia, but there's definitely a lot of it. Why do you think that that is so popular? Like, why do you think that sort of 80s nostalgia retro feel is is in full force right now? Um, I think that a big part of it is that, you know, the, the people that are making movies right now are people that grew up in that time period. So I think that it's natural that an artist is going to be drawn to that which inspired him or her to, you know, to, to in, when they're making their, their own art. Um, you know, I think it's also something that's really important to us. I mean, we, you know, growing up like in the VHS era, um, you know, renting VHS tapes and, and all of that. I mean, that was how a lot of us discovered movies, Oh yeah, you know? And, and so that, you know, like, you know, like, like with beyond the gates, you know, that's why there's such a surge of, 
you know, almost like adrenaline when you walk into a VHS store, you see one is because that was a seminal moment for you. You know, that was something that was really, really, really important to you. Um, you know, so, so I think that a lot of it just has to do with the fact that, you know, people that are making movies now grew up with movies, either movies made in the eighties or movies with an eighties aesthetic or, or, you know, just grew up in the eighties. And so that is what, you know, inspires them and is a part of their DNA. Um, you know, on the other hand, I think that like, like with sequence break, something that I was trying to really comment on, you know, it's, it's a specific choice to have the movie take place modern day, but in the crumbling remnants of something from the past. Right. Um, you know, I wanted to make a comment or at least to explore the, the idea of, of people that are sort of stuck in nostalgia, you know, of people that, you know, that, that I, I don't know. I mean, there's people that I, I, you know, read online that hate anything that came out after 1987, <laughs> you know, and, and it's, and, and to me, I think that's also equally as dangerous, um, you know, as, as disregarding the past, right. uh, because you're, you're, you know, you're, uh, you're stuck in your old ways and you're not, you know, you're not leaving yourself open to potentially, you know, a lot of really, um, amazing stuff in your life. Um, and, and so I, I, I don't know, it, it, it was, you know, I don't have a specific comment to make on it. Um, but I thought that it was, uh. I thought that it was important to have Oz be somebody not just living in an eighties world, but living in an eighties world while physically being in like the 2010s, you know? Right. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, I guess the, 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 you know, the short answer is, is that I, I think that people that are making movies now, they were inspired by the eighties and that's what drove them. And so we, you know, so we, we have, uh, we have a bunch of movies that are set back then, and I think that makes sense. Well, and um, you and I have talked before about how horror is – it's the easiest genre to make because people think that it's the easiest genre to make, but it's one of the hardest genres to do well. And I kind of feel like that is a similar piece with uh, with some of this nostalgia and sort of paying homage to the movies that we grew up on. You know, I feel like in order to do – in order to do nostalgia well, to where someone who is watching it, who grew up in that time, like they get it and they love it, and it's like, oh yes, this is part of what's drawing me in, can be kind of difficult because uh, it feels almost like there are a lot of people saying, oh, the 80s are popular, let's just do that because why not, it's popular, let's try and make some money off of it. And I really appreciate the fact um, that Sequence Break, Beyond the Gates, um, both of them, they don't feel... Like like you um, or or Jackson Stewart were trying to just cash in on the eighties, they felt like genuine love stories to these things. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, I you know it was important to me to just be authentic with it. Yeah. You know, and and I think that that's sort of the key to it is that if you're authentic in your storytelling and if you're you know just being open and honest about your love for whatever it is you're making a movie about. Um, then it's not going to feel as much like a pastiche and it's going to feel more like it was a necessary setting for this story, um, you know, so that the movie could say the things it wanted to say. Right. 
Yeah, your uh, your comments about some people hate anything made after 1987. Obviously, my mind went straight to Star Wars, <laughs> and how sure. some people hate the new Star Wars, and I absolutely love them. I, I think Last Jedi I did, was one of I, the best. Yeah, I did too, um, and I agree. You know, and 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 I'll say this is that obviously everybody is completely entitled to their own opinion, and everybody sure. is totally. I I don't you know look if somebody doesn't like last jedi i don't care you know i'm i'm sorry for them because i think it was great (laughs) but if they if they don't like it then they don't like it that's fine right you know so i don't begrudge them their their opinion however i do (laughs) think that a lot of the complaints that i hear are less about the you know quality of the work that was put in front of them and more about the work in relation to their expectations of what they wanted right and and i think that that is where kind of the danger comes which is that you know the the uh you know if if you're if you're judging something based on your expectation of it especially if it's an expectation that is based on how you felt when you first saw the movie when you were five i think you're only setting yourself up for disappointment right and i think that what you know i mean you not to digress too much about the last jedi <laughs> but i think that i think that what the last jedi did so well is that the last Jedi made um, it? It really made an effort to to subvert everyone's expectations and try new things and say, in order for this thing that we all love so much to survive in a meaningful way over the next fifty years or whatever, that it has to evolve and right. it has to change, um, and so. And so here we are, one foot firmly rooted in the past, but a new foot stepping forward and trying some new stuff. Um, and and I I really loved that subversion of expectations because I I'm a huge Star Wars fan. I have been my whole life. It's a really important thing to me. Um, and and you know to finally see a Star Wars movie where I didn't know what was going to happen, uh, I I felt really uh, excited about that. Um, I can understand people that are going like, but I just want to see a cool lightsaber battle. Like that <laughs> but it is, had it, one of the best. And it, it, it did. It had a great one. Oh but, my God, it was so you awesome. Know, but, but, you know, I also remember like feeling so hollow after seeing Yoda fight Count Dooku. Right. You know, like that was on paper something that I had always wanted to see. And, and yes, when it first came out, I was really excited about it. But the more that I watch it, the more hollow I feel about it because I feel like Oh, I was just being given something that I wanted, and I wasn't being. I, I in in I was just being given something that I wanted instead of being um, shown something that I wasn't expecting. Right. Um. And you know, I think that that's really like for me, that's what storytelling is all about is is showing somebody um, something that they've never seen before and surprising them and and you know being uh uh you know being a i don't know what the word is you know being a a steward of of some new form of storytelling that this person had never encountered before that you know expands them in some way yeah and like i always try to draw the line between someone saying whether or not they liked something and someone saying whether or not something was good 
Like I know people right. use them interchangeably, but I try to be very intentional. So like even with reviews that I do, I try to say, this is why I enjoyed the movie. Here are the things that were technically good, but this is why I enjoyed it. Yeah. And and I think sometimes people conflate the two and they say, if I didn't enjoy it, therefore it must not be good. Right. And <laughs> we can go back to that uh, comment about uh, use of red and blue and <laughs> talk about how dangerous that can be. But I do feel like that's a very dangerous thing, even within just entertainment of just because you don't like something, instantly saying that something is bad. Um, you know, using Star Wars as an example, I did not like Phantom Menace because I absolutely hated Jar Jar. There mm-hmm. was such that strong. There was such a strong emotional reaction to Jar Jar is the worst. Can't stand him. Therefore, this is a bad movie. Upon repeated viewings, because I'm also a nerd, and sometimes we'll binge all of the Star Wars movies together. There's a lot of stuff about Phantom Menace that is really, really good. I still hate Jar Jar, but like taking that out, there's so much that can be said that's good. I think that's important for people to see. And understand this is why I like something and this is why uh, this makes something good. Relating that back to Sequence Break, because we're talking about that, not Star Wars. Um, you know, with some of that nostalgia, with some of the more Cronenbergian body horror type of stuff, that's not something that is quite as common nowadays. At least I don't feel like. Um, you know, you have aliens, you have stuff happening two bodies because of aliens but like you don't have a whole lot of just straight up body horror at least not quite as mainstream uh and so i feel like having sequence break bring some of that in not over the top but at least some of it can start introducing people who maybe have never seen cronenberg maybe have never seen the thing maybe have never seen some of these iconic movies that you know have really shaped horror i I feel like this can kind of be a gateway drug for them Sure. Yeah, I mean, I I hope so. You know, I, uh, you know, Cronenberg is so synonymous with body horror. Sure. Um, and and for good reason. You know, and a lot of people have asked me, you know, was this an intentional homage to Cronenberg, and was this, um, you know, were you trying to, you know, copy Cronenberg or whatever? And and for me, you know, the crux of it was that I, I wanted to make a body horror film because I felt like that was the most effective way to tell this story. And certainly, you know, I think the most successful body horror films by and large have been from David Cronenberg. So, you know, you need to watch the masters to be able to, you know, to, to really, uh, uh, you know, be able to, to tell your own successful story. Um, you know, I, I definitely took inspiration from Cronenberg, um, and particularly Videodrome, uh, you know, which obviously has a lot of like strong thematic similarities to sequence break. Um, you know, but, but really the, the, you know, the inspiration that I took was just in, in Cronenberg's, um, ability to make metaphor flesh. Um, and so I wanted to try to tackle this story in the same way. Um, you know, and, and I hope that, you know, man, I, I would be thrilled if somebody watched this movie and then went, Oh, you know what? I really, I want to go check out some of that Cronenberg guy's stuff like that. How amazing would that be? That would be incredible. <laughs> right. Imagine if it went the other way around. Imagine if someone watched Cronenberg, like I want to check out this, uh, Graham Skeeper dude. Who, who is this guy? <laughs> yeah. I mean, man, talk about a dream. 
Uh, all right. At this point, I definitely have taken up way too much of your time. So five lightning questions. All right. Uh, are you ready? I am ready. If there was a crossover between Sequence Break and Tron, what would that look like? Uh, it would have a lot more action. Um, and I think it would probably involve Oz riding on a light cycle, uh, racing Tess um, down a, a lonesome light highway. Um, and, and maybe it would be their first argument as a couple uh, flinging flying discs <laughs> at each other. I was about to say that sounds super romantic. <laughs> Until they have an argument and throw light discs at each other. Uh, all right. What does the game Laser Balls look like? Please, please, please tell me that it's just a uh, video game version of the balls from Phantasm just flying around <laughs> shooting lasers at things. Um, yeah, I mean, kind of. Uh, I definitely, <laughs> uh, I, I imagine Laser Balls as being, uh, yeah, just big floating spheres uh, that shoot lasers out of them. And you have to uh, try to avoid the uh, the lasers as they as they hit you. Um, but that's kind of the extent of it. It's not very <laughs> not very complex. So it's Phantasm Five. Awesome. Yes. <laughs> All right. So uh, if for no other reason than the fact that it involves games, uh, there are some similarities between Beyond the Gates and Sequence Break. If these happen in the same universe, God, poor Chase just cannot catch a break. What other video games will be his demise? Or not just video games, but what other uh, games would be his demise? Um, I was going to say, I, uh, I can totally see him somehow accidentally starting in like a, like a, a, a global war by a game of Risk. Um, <laughs> so, somehow the Risk board comes to life. Um, or, 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 you know, if he, you know, something having to do with like having to blow on a, on a cartridge with an old Nintendo console. And then that like mouth on the Nintendo console has to, you know, perhaps it gets hungry and starts to try to eat his fingers. Ooh, I like that. Uh, all right. Does sequence break prove that our mothers were right? Do video games rot our brains? More importantly, <laughs> do they rot our souls? Um, you know, I do not think that video games rot our brains or our souls. I think video games are great. Um, but as with everything, you know, if you get too obsessed, well, there's there's a there's a dark side to everything that we love. Truth. And last question. Last time we talked, uh, you brought up stomach vagina. When are we going to be able to see that? And what would the general premise be? <laughs> stomach vagina. Because <laughs> um, I'm not going uh, to let you forget that. No, I, I don't <laughs> want to forget it. Um, I think stomach vagina. Uh, uh, a, a young man lonely with with a a stagnant dating life is sitting at home alone wishing that he had company and then he looks he feels a, a strange sensation under his shirt and he looks at it and he's got a stomach vagina and his stomach <laughs> vagina can never be satiated sort of i imagine it being like like a little shop of horrors but instead of a plant it's a it's a stomach vagina so, uh, even though that was said, like, jokingly and very quick, can you imagine just how terrifyingly lonely that would be? Like, yay, he finally has a vagina. Well, unless he also has, what, like, a two-foot dong. I, he's never getting anything. That is just eternally sad. <laughs> well, well, perhaps we should end there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
All right, Graham, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so, so much for taking up so much time to uh, to talk horror and uh, go into some in-depth analysis about obsession and romance and gooey joysticks. Yeah, man. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, and this was a, a total blast. So uh, just to close things out, uh, if you want people to follow you, where can they follow you on the social medias? Uh, we've already said, go watch Sequence Break on Shudder. Um, yeah, yeah, watch Sequence Break on Shudder. It's there right now. Um, and uh, you can find me on Twitter at Graham Skipper. Uh, Graham like Graham Cracker, Skipper like Gilligan's Island. Uh, and then uh, www.gramskipper.com. And uh, yeah, come, come say hi. Let me know what you thought of the movie. I thought it was fantastic. Uh, all right, and if there's anyone out there who wants to follow me, um, Twitter uh, is the underscore gargoyle, but Facebook and Instagram are both just the gargoyle because uh, it's a gargoyle wearing an argyle sweater, hence gargoyle. Um, yeah, and if you enjoyed this episode, keep checking back. Uh, listen to my coverage from the Chat Film Fest. Um, check out past episodes. Uh, did one recently with Mike Teston and uh, Matt Mercer. So check out all of that fun indie horror goodness, and you can find all of the past episodes and all of the future episodes at gargylereviews.wixsite.com slash thegargyle, uh, or just follow me on Facebook. That is where most of the... Uh, everything gets posted everywhere, but you get a lot of response there. So, um, yeah. I, I guess that's it. Any final words on horror or goo? No, man. Let's get slimy. <laughs> I love it. All right. Uh, that's been it for this episode of the Gargoyle Podcast. Uh, as always, you can find me where horror and sliminess abound. <laughs>